0: Hey, it is so good to be with you this morning, Bay Life. My name is Travis Lowe. I am the teaching pastor on staff here at the church, which is a role that I've been occupying for the last two months or so. And that means that I wear a lot of different hats in this particular vocation. So in addition to what I'm doing here, which is teaching on a Sunday morning. I also run our foundations program, which is kind of how we do theological education at the church. So we teach things like church history, we teach things like apologetics, so that Christians can t- continue to grow in their faith and not remain stagnant, but learn the deeper truths of what it means to follow Jesus. I also manage our resources page. So if you go to baylife.org slash resources, you'll find videos and blogs interacting with different passages of scripture, different questions that people have emailed into us about the Christian faith, and so I kind of head that up, and then along with my wife, who just led us in worship, I manage our Stone Table podcast where we interview smart people and ask them questions and marvel at their brilliance. Uh, and so I absolutely love everything I get to do, but, but all of it is done through the lens of helping the Bible to be better understood here at our church If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know we've been walking through this season of Advent. It's the first time we've done anything like this as a church. We've done Christmas series before, but Advent is sort of its own unique thing. And I think that's been a really beautiful time for us as a church to to join with Christians of other backgrounds and other denominations as we prepare our hearts for what we celebrated on Christmas, which was the birth of Jesus. And even though it was our first time here at Baylife doing Advent, it was not my first time doing Advent. Although I've been at Baylife for probably 15 to 16 years, not working here that long, but attending here, I I grew up for the first decade or so of my life in a different denomination and a very different church culture. I grew up in something called the Episcopal Church, which if you've never heard of that before, it's the best way I can describe it is it's sort of like a diet Catholic church. It's similar, but not quite the same. There's some pretty important differences, but a lot of the the liturgy and the ups and downs and kneeling and sign of the cross and all that stuff is present in my background. And I remember growing up in this background absolutely hating it, like loathing it with every fiber of my being, not hating Jesus, but hating going to church. Sort of the, the beginning of what I didn't like was that my parents made me dress up and in my mind, whether this was true or not, every shirt with buttons on it was also itchy. And so in my mind, I was wearing like this itchy, this itchy vest as I went to church. So right off the bat, getting ready for church was a nightmare, and I complained about it. And then we would go to this church that was more old-fashioned in its approach to worship, and none of the songs we sang sounded anything like my favorite bands at the time, which were NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, because it was all hymns with these and thou's, all of it was set to a pipe organ. Occasionally it was sung in Latin. Didn't sound like anything that I spent my hard-earned allowance purchasing on CD, which I guess is no longer a thing. People don't use CDs anymore. The other thing that bothered me is that I didn't understand anything that was going on in the service. I didn't understand the call and response where the minister would say something and the congregation would respond. I didn't get all of the creeds. I didn't know why we had to kneel and stand up and sit down and sign of the cross as top down left right instead of the opposite direction. none None of it made any sense to me. And so for years coming out of that background, I looked back on it with this sense of disdain and superiority as though I'd figured out something better than those silly old people I grew up with. But as I got older, as I started to kind of study theology a little bit more, as I started to look into church history, I started to realize there's, there's a lot of problems in the background that I grew up in, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. There were some things that, that, that I could learn from the way that I grew up doing church. It was my uncle Chris who pointed out the fact that that old musty building that we met in was shaped like a cross so that every time we as a congregation gathered we gathered in the shape of the cross as if to say that God's people are a cruciform people we're a people of the cross and when he told me that I said you know what I never knew that but I kind of like what that says It was my mom who pointed out that during the scripture reading portion of our service, when the gospels were read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the the minister would take the the Bible and walk into the center of the room in the midst of the congregation and read the gospels as if to say, this is good news for all people. And also as if to say, hey, the minister is not better than anybody else. He needs the gospel just as much as the rest of us. And I thought, you know what? I kind of love that. Eventually, I even kind of started to like all those songs that didn't sound anything like NSYNC. I started to like those old hymns. But the thing that I've most appreciated in reflecting back on where I came from was their sense of time. Because... The, the, the church I grew up in followed something called the, the Christian calendar or the church year, which is, for those who are unfamiliar, the series of holidays throughout the year that mark different events in Jesus' life. Now, most Christians celebrate at least a few of them. Christmas is one of them. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Easter is another one. We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. But there's way more than just Christmas and Easter to the Christian year. We celebrated part of it as a church when we walked through Advent, where we remember this season of waiting on the birth of the Messiah, and then there's 12 days of Christmas, not just one. Unfortunately, you don't get presents all 12 days of Christmas. But after that, it's Epiphany, which Mark mentioned the first week of our Advent series, where we remember the visit of the wise men to Jesus, the first time Gentiles saw their Messiah. And then it's Lent, the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness while he fasted. And then all of Holy Week, where we remember all of the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And then it's Easter, and then we celebrate the ascension that Jesus rose into heaven. And then it's Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the giving out of the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on it goes, each season marked by something in Jesus' life. Now, I don't think you need to do any of these things to be a good Christian, I don't think any of these things are necessary to be a passionate follower of Jesus, but they are grasping at something that I do think is important because they recognize this. They're they're trying to grapple with this. If Jesus is Lord of everything, that means he's Lord of time as well. So what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of our time? What does it look like for us to number our days in light of Jesus? What does it look like to surrender our time to our King? And that's what I wanna examine together this morning through the lens of the Gospel according to Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. It is Luke 10, verses 38 through to 42. Just a little bit of context. For the last three years of Jesus' ministry, he's been traveling around Judea, he's been causing all sorts of issues for the religious leaders. He's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing, but something shifts in Jesus' ministry right around chapter 10 of Luke. We're told that the time for Jesus to be lifted up drew near, and so he set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, this is a a poetic way of saying that the time for Jesus' crucifixion drew near because he's being lifted up on the cross. And so Jesus recognizes that his teaching ministry, at least in the way it's existed for the last three years, is coming to an end. Jesus recognizes that his death is on the horizon, and so he begins the journey to Jerusalem. He begins his journey towards the cross, and it's on this journey that we come to verse 38. Luke says this, now as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. who are named in this story are friends of Jesus and the disciples, along with their brother Lazarus. If you kind of read through the rest of the Gospels, they come up again and again and again. It's almost as if this was part of Jesus' friend group. These were people that Jesus spent time with, ate meals with, and and every so often they appear in the story. Jesus stops in to visit Mary and Martha, or Jesus appears at the funeral of Lazarus to to raise his friend and also to mourn with those who grieve Lazarus' death. These are people who Jesus loves and cares very deeply for. And on his way to his death, Jesus stops at Martha's home where Mary is residing. Now, Keep in mind, almost any time Jesus goes anywhere, it's not just by himself. Jesus is always bringing his disciples with him. Sometimes it's two or three. More often, it's all of them. And so you have to imagine the scene here. Maybe Jesus sent word ahead. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he thought, oh, we're we're next to Martha's house. I'm I'm just going to knock on the door and see if anyone's home. But Jesus shows up with 13 people in tow and says, hey, we just thought we would stop in. And Martha flies into a frenzy getting things ready. There's 13 people who want to stay at her house. They need places to sleep. They need food to eat. They need something to drink. They need water. They, They need all sorts of things. They need a place to put their sandals. They need to have their feet washed. On and on and on it goes. She flies into this frenzy preparing her home for these guests. I can sympathize with this. I don't know what your house looked like growing up, but in my parents' home, when people came over, there was a three-week process of preparation. It was like Advent, every time we had guests coming over. And and it it started on the outside. My dad would sort of make sure that the lawn was perfectly manicured, and then it would move to the living room, and then it would move to the kitchen, and then it would move to the dining room, and it would take weeks. And every time one thing was done, it was quarantine for me and my brother. So the living room is clean, you are now forbidden to enter because they knew the destructive power of the low boys. We could ruin that living room in two minutes, even if it took two hours to clean it. It, it got to the point to where it was like, Hey, this bathroom is clean. So if you would like to brush your teeth, here's a water bottle and a toothbrush. You can go outside. That didn't literally happen, but, but you, you get my point. And as a kid, I, th- I thought this is ridiculous. Everybody's house is messy Who are we kidding? Their house looks just as messy as ours. Why are we pretending like ours is clean all the time? But the older I've gotten, the more I understand the intention behind that. Like as I've started my own home and my own family and invited people into my home, I've started to understand this desire. I want to present my best for people. Like if I'm inviting people into my home, I wanna care for them well. I wanna serve them well. I want my home to be a place where they don't find chaos but find peace. And so you can can sympathize with Martha. Her Lord has just entered her home. And she flies into a frenzy trying to prepare things for him, trying to make the best use of what little time she has to make sure that everything looks perfect for Jesus. But notice what Luke says about Martha in verse 40. Martha was... Distracted. Martha flies into this frenzy of of making sure that, that her home looks perfect. And in her mind, she thinks, I'm serving Jesus right now. I'm serving the Lord. And Luke says, No, you're distracted. Here's what I think Luke wants for us to grasp. It is entirely possible for us to fill our time with doing things for God without actually having surrendered our time to God. Doing things for God is not the same thing because Martha is distracted from what is most important. I feel like I got sort of a sense of this A couple years ago, I had all these incredible opportunities coming my way. I I just started seminary again, and I was eager to kind of jump into classes, and so I signed up for way more classes than I should have in the summer of 2016. And then I had this opportunity to go to Uganda through this ministry that we partner with as a church, Alarm, where we teach and train pastors and I was so excited about that, and, and so I had agreed to do that, and then I had the opportunity to teach here on a Sunday morning, two weeks back-to-back, back. And, I, and I said yes to that, and I agreed to all of these things in the span of like one month. There's this thing that happens when you go to the other side of the world called jet lag. I didn't believe it was real until it happened to me, and I didn't think it would really happen to me in the way that it did but I can tell you now that July of 2016 was a jet-lagged blur. I can't remember hardly anything that happened, but what I do remember in that month of busyness, having filled my time with doing all of these things for God, I remember one day going out with uh, some friends on staff and we were getting lunch and I had just ordered this coffee and I remember being so exhausted, not even knowing what day it was, But, but somebody cracked a joke and I didn't laugh because I wasn't feeling anything at all at that point. And they sort of nudged me and were like, "Ah, did you hear that? And I just ground my teeth. (laughs) I was like, it must be nice to be happy right now and know what day it is. (laughs) Because I was exhausted. And in my mind, I was like, I'm doing all these things for Jesus. This is exactly what I should be doing. But here's what I realized, looking at my black coffee, grinding my teeth and being angry. I had filled my time doing all these things for Jesus and I couldn't tell you the last time I'd spent time in prayer meeting with Jesus. I couldn't tell you the last time I had opened my Bible and read it without the intention of preaching what I read two days later. I had done all these things for God, but in Luke's words, I was distracted with much serving. So maybe you heard that I was gonna talk about surrendering our time to the Lord and you thought that what I was gonna tell you is that you needed to volunteer in more places or sign up for more missions trips or start a Bible study at your work. All of these are good things. All of these are important things. But that it is not the first thing. The story of Mary and Martha warns us that before we surrender our time to serve the Lord, we have to surrender our time to be with the Lord. So let me just offer what might sound like a really cliche youth group application. Maybe a diagnostic question for you. Look back on the last year. Oh, let's, let's shrink the time span. Look back on the last month. And if you can count on one hand the number of times that you opened your Bible and read it, the number of times that you went to the Lord in prayer and not just in praying for the traffic light to change, or if the only time either of these things happened is when you came here on a Sunday morning and we prayed in our service or opened our Bibles in a sermon, but you've lost track of the different places you're serving, you might be in a Martha situation. You might be distracted with much serving and have lost sight of Jesus Himself. But it's important to say this, because so often Martha gets painted as the villain in this story, as though she's malicious. She's not. She's trying her very best, right? The Lord is in her house. She she wants to, to serve him well. It's not that Martha is doing something bad. It's that she's missed what's best. She's gotten the logic of the gospel backwards, because the logic of the gospel is never do then be, It's never do stuff for Jesus so that you can be closer to him. Instead, it is draw near to Jesus and serve him out of the overflow of the time that you've spent with him. There is a radical difference between people who serve Jesus thinking that that's how they'll get closer and people who love Jesus and serve him out of the passion that that brings. But notice in all of this, Martha gets fairly upset. We're told in verse 40, she was distracted with much serving and she went up to Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, this is not the point of the passage, but it's so fascinating to me that she goes up to Jesus and she calls him Lord and then she tells him what to do. (laughs) Hey, Lord, just so you know, we're playing by my rules now. Like how, how often are we guilty of this? Yes, Jesus is Lord until I find an area where I don't like Jesus' opinions and will substitute my own for those things. No, she goes to Jesus, she calls him Lord, and then she issues demands because she doesn't think the Lord is doing what he ought to. But you can hear sort of the, the, the broken heartedness in her voice. She says, do you not care? Like, don't you care about what's happening right now? And you can imagine the scene, right? Jesus shows up and, and he's got his 12 disciples with him and she sort of just gets to work making sure that things are prepared and making sure that things are ready and making sure that everything is as it ought to be. And then she notices, hey, all of this work isn't getting done nearly as fast as it normally does. And she sees Mary. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And you can see her getting madder and madder and madder. And I don't know if she like, breaks a plate and a record scratches and everyone turns around and looks. But she finally loses it. What Mary is doing is actually a, a radical act. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But in Jesus' day, sitting at the feet of a rabbi was to assume the position of somebody who was being trained by that rabbi. It it was to be um, apprentice to that rabbi. It was to become someone who was being taught and trained. And in Jesus' day, women were not allowed to be trained by rabbis. They weren't allowed to to study theology. And so Jesus does this radical thing in which he opens the kingdom of God and he says, this is for everyone. Come, sit at my feet, learn. Learn the deep things of God. Jesus invites Mary to the table on equal footing as the 12 disciples. And Martha says to Jesus, don't you care? Like, Don't you care about all the stuff I'm doing for you? And Jesus' response, it's so clear that he does, he does care. He says this to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things. Can I just tell you, that if you find yourself in this Martha-like circumstance, all of your time is spent doing things for God without spending time learning and sitting at the feet of Jesus and growing, you will find yourself anxious and troubled and frustrated because the task that you have set your hands to is impossible. No, it's from Mary's time at the feet of Jesus that she is able to do the sort of things that Martha does. Let me explain what I mean by that. I, I have a friend who struggles with something called seasonal affective disorder. In the last 20 or 30 years, we've, we've sort of come a long way in our understanding of mental health issues. And one of the things that scientists have noted is that our seasons can really affect our mood. There's something about the, the atmosphere and environment that has an effect on our bodies. And so for places like Alaska or places like Iceland, places that are really far to the north where it's darker longer during winter, depression skyrockets because there's something about sunlight that helps to regulate our mood. And so one of my friends who I've just mentioned lived a little bit further north and whenever the days got shorter, he would experience this plummeting depression every year come December and so as he was meeting with one of his counselors they prescribed to him something called a light box maybe you've never heard of it before it's essentially a TV without sitcoms or any fun programming at all it's a box that quite literally just projects UV light and so what his counselor told him to do is buy one of these light boxes and every morning for 15 minutes make your coffee and just sit in front of it look into the light box Because the the, the light has to pass through the conicles of your eyes for your brain to release the dopamine. This is not some sort of like weird, hippie, meditative thing. There's something about the light that helps regulate our mood. And he'll tell you this, as strange as it sounds, those 15 minutes spent in the presence of that light is the foundation for everything else he does the rest of the day. It is only because of that that he has the ability to make it through Day. So it is with our time spent in the presence of Jesus. When we spend time in his presence, when we spend time at his feet, when we spend time learning about the depths and the riches of our faith, like Mary does when Jesus invites her to be a disciple, that's when we have the ability to truly serve him well. It becomes the foundation for all of our work. It's not that we need to be Mary instead of Martha. It's that we need to be married before we're Martha. I don't say this as somebody who has things all figured out. Listen, I am not good at this stuff. When I, when I ask the question like, how many times have you prayed in the past month or read the Bible without having to do it in church, I'm indicting myself here. Especially now that, that, that my wife and I are both in ministry, vocationally. We have sensed even more deeply our need, our need to sit at the feet of Jesus if we're ever going to be effective. It's, it's, it's the reason why we asked for a prayer book for Christmas and, and have started reading that and then reading a psalm and then spending time praying for the day because it's the only way we're ever going to do anything of any value is if we know the one whose kingdom we proclaim. For parents, this is is a family service. Can I plead with you? Don't farm out your discipleship duty to your children to our children's ministry. You are the first discipler of your children. We wanna come alongside you and empower you and encourage you. But the weight of that falls firstly on you. Take the time every morning to open the Bible with your children. Take the time every morning to pray with your kids. I am so thankful that my mom developed this habit when me and my brother were younger. On our way to school, because she took us to school every single day, there was one speed bump we would go over and I remember the speed bump and as soon as we hit the speed bump, she'd go, all right, what do you want to pray for today? My brother always prayed for the exact same thing and I don't even know what I prayed for. But she cultivated this understanding at the beginning of every day, we spend time with Jesus We spend time in God's presence so that the rest of our time can be lived in light of that. Jesus finally turns his attention to Mary. Mary doesn't say anything in this whole passage. It's Jesus and Martha, but he turns the focus of the conversation to Mary in verse 42. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. As we look towards the new year, as we look towards the the times ahead, there will be all sorts of realities that require your time, and they're not bad things. If you've got a family, you need to invest time in your relationship with your spouse, you need to invest in your children, you need to invest in your job so you can pay the bills, if you're a high school student, maybe you're investing in the sort of things that might help you pay for that really expensive college education, whether it's a scholarship for sports or academics or music. All of these things are good. They're not bad investments of your time. But here's what Jesus says to Martha, that what Mary has chosen will not be taken away. How Mary has chosen to spend her time is lossless. There are all sorts of things that will demand your time, and they're not bad things, but none of them have the promise of permanence. None of them. That relationship that you've invested all that time in, it could dissolve. That athletic career that you've been building, it's gone in a single injury. That bank account that you've been building, all it takes is one stock market turn. None of these things are bad, but they do not bear the stamp of eternity. Jesus says what Mary has chosen will never be taken from her is the time that she chooses to spend at his feet in his presence, knowing him more fully. I saw this in the last few years with my grandmother on my mom's side. She was the, the daughter of Greek immigrants. Her name was Artemisia Demopolis, which is a tongue twister. And she was good at a whole host of things. She was an incredible cook. She made the the best waffles that I've ever had in my whole life, and I'm sure that that took years to hone and perfect. Her recipe box was loaded with things that I will never hope to have the ability to make. She was an incredible seamstress. My mom, for the first like 12 years of her life, didn't have to buy clothes. She would just open the magazine and point at it and say, can you make this? And my Yaya would say, yes. That's unbelievable to me that you can just make clothes. She invested years in that, learning how to sew and and investing in in sewing machines and patterns and fabrics and things like that. She played the most boring card game I've ever heard of called Bridge. And she played it religiously every single week for decades. And she invested time in this game. When, When we went through her library, she had books on how to be the best at Bridge, however that works. She invested all of this time, in all of these things, none of them bad, all of them good, all of them helpful, all of them practical. But towards the end of her life, she developed dementia. And as that disease progressed, she began to lose things, one by one. She couldn't cook anymore because she couldn't remember what she had put in the food she was making. She couldn't follow the recipe. Eventually, Because of the arthritis in her hand, she couldn't sew anymore and so she didn't make clothes. I couldn't tell you the last time she played bridge. It it was years. All of this time, in all of these things, none of which are bad, but all of which were gone. Here's what she didn't lose, even unto the end. She was a lifelong episcopalian which means that she prayed the great prayers of the church every week. So, if you said to my yaya, even when she couldn't remember the most fundamental things about her life, if you said to her our father, who art in heaven, she could finish the whole prayer. Or if you recited the the, the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth she could finish the whole thing from memory when she couldn't even remember that her husband had passed away or if you recited the prayer that my papu prayed over dinner every night give us grateful hearts our father for these and all thy mercies and make us mindful of the needs of others through christ our lord every single time it was the only thing that she did not lose the only thing, it was the time that she spent in the presence of Jesus, knowing him better. But that's the promise Jesus makes. That's what he says to Martha. Not, Martha, you're doing something awful. He says, Martha, Mary has chosen what is best Mary has chosen to invest her time in the one thing that she will not lose, and it's me. He says to Martha, and perhaps to us, you're doing a lot of things for me, but you need first to surrender your time to being with me. This is what is necessary, this is what cannot be taken away. So Baylife's advent gives way to New Year, As Christmas of 2019 moves to spring of 2020, you're gonna find yourself investing your time in a lot of good things, but can I plead with you that this be the year that you invest your time in the most important thing, what cannot be taken, time spent with your Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have brought us together this morning. Lord, we ask that you would take your word, that you would apply it to us. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to be Mary before we're Martha, not instead of being Martha, that we would spend time at your feet and serve you in our jobs and in our homes out of the abundance of our relationship with you. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us? Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you send us out to our homes, to our jobs, to our families, to our classrooms, wherever it is we find ourselves. Lord, would you teach us to cherish our time with you, to open your word, to meet with you in prayer, to gather with one another, to to celebrate your goodness here on Sunday mornings, and let that be the foundation of all that we do. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' matchless
1: name, and we say amen. We'll see you next week.